following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Let's read, uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 17. Luke chapter 15, verse 17. But when he came to himself, talking about the younger son, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. We see here the feast of the father that has regained a son that was as good as dead. That was lost and gone forever in what he felt. Now he's back and he is celebrating. Here's a question that maybe I should have asked at the, the very start of this series, and I'm asking at the very end. Why on earth are we going to spend five entire weeks on one passage, on one parable? Good question, right? Why are we spending five weeks on one parable? And here's why. It's a valid question, and here's why. This parable, and the message of this parable, the central message of this parable, is central to the, of the, the main theme of all Scripture. Which means that it is speaking truth to you and I, at the core of who we are. If you've rebelled against God and made mistakes and committed gross sins of so many kinds against God, this message is for you. If you've been a good person and gone to church your entire life and made good choices and always been on the straight and narrow and you have a a few big sins but not many, then this message is central to you. If you really don't think deeply about spiritual things, then this message is for you. And Jesus does a great job, the great storyteller that he is, is taking this parable and effectively telling us the central theme of all of Scripture. Jesus is telling us that every human being shares the same need, that we need to be rescued from God because we find ourselves so frequently alienated, away from him, rebelling against him, whether we've tried to be good or because we've done bad things. We need to be rescued. And this parable doesn't only cause us to reflect individually because um, that's common, right? We can read the scriptures and we can come and worship and think and then we can always just think, what does this mean for me? What does it mean for my life? What does it mean for my own family, my friends, my roommates? What does it mean for my own spiritual walk? And that's a very good question. But this parable is going to take a step further and it's going to cause us to reflect on what does this have to do with us as a, as a people, as a community, as a family? Because that's what Jesus is doing through this parable. He's talking to us personally and he is inaugurating a new kind of community of people. Shows us how deep this application goes. It talks about the entire human race throughout all of history. We see from this parable that all of Scripture is about people that have been alienated from God and need to be brought home. Think back towards the very beginning of Scripture. In Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, God created the universe. And in that universe, he put a garden. And in that garden, he put Adam and Eve. 
And like the younger son in this parable, Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and they found themselves alienated, cut off from his fellowship, from his presence, from his, from his grace, cut off. And to make no mistake, God put an angel in the, in the entrance of the garden with a big sword, and it was on fire, so that they would never return. And just as soon as they were alienated, God promised to one day restore that relationship forever. That he would bring them home. Think about the Israelite people in general, the Jewish people. If you have read the Old Testament even a little bit or have some understanding of of the Old Testament, you see continually and repeatedly over and over again God's people being scattered, God's people being alienated, God's people being in exile, and God restoring them and bringing them home. And the cycle just repeats itself over and over and over again, whether it was the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Greeks or anything. It was, or Rome. It was these people coming in and scattering God's people and God saying, I'm going to bring you back one day. And that's what it's all about. And it's, an, and it's not an understatement to say that the entire rest of Scripture from the book of Genesis is uncovering God's plan of fulfilling that promise to bring people home. And saying, if there's any doubt, let the media remove all doubt. No matter who you are, whether you've been good or bad, you find yourself alienated and cut off from God. And I will do everything to one day bring you home. I bet I can convince you a little bit of that feeling of exile. Because we feel, in some way, exiled even today. Because this is not our eternal home. Just, we're not home. We're not with God. We're not enjoying that, uh, that real presence with no sin, no tears, no shame, we are, in a way, still in exile from that perfect Eden that we were created for. Is there a situation in your life or a circumstance where you think, where, where it happens or you, it, you enjoy it and you say, oh, this is nice? Think of vacation. Think of the last vacation that you went on and maybe it was just wonderful. And you know how it happens after a vacation, all you want to do is plan the next one. There's something inside of us that says, I need a break. Isn't, doesn't that cry out with a loud voice that you're still in exile, that you're still longing for something better? Like, doesn't the very fact that you and I long for things that are good or better than what we have prove that we are longing for something that we were created for that we don't have? That you want relationships that are long-lasting and intimate and close why, to even hunger after that would mean that you were created for that. To, to get away from the heat and to have some, to go up to Mount Lemon and have 15 or 20 degrees cooler, to even desire that, that there's something better. Or just to have rest at the end of the day. From time to time, Janae and I will, if we're cleaning dishes or working around the house or whatever, uh, well, she's cleaning dishes, let's be honest. And it, Seriously. <laughs> and, and there's something, she even said this just a couple days ago. You know, Cohen is down, he's sleeping. And she said, wait, wait. She says, quiet. Do you hear that? And I say, and she, and I, say I don't hear anything. She says, exactly. <laughs> exactly. There's a peace. There's a quiet. Because our soul longs for that. We long to be home. We long to be at rest. And we don't have it. We are not home. And we were created for home. Does a fish feel uncomfortable when it's wet? 
Probably not. <laughs> Probably not, because that's home. That's what it was created for. It's normal for us. We feel uncomfortable in our current state. There are things that bring us joy. Don't get me wrong. There are things that we enjoy that are wonderful, that are blessings from God, but we're not there. We haven't, we haven't arrived. We're not without sin. We're not without shame or guilt. We're not without discomfort. So we're not home. We were built for Eden. We were built for God. We were built for fellowship and enjoyment and, and festive joy with God. We were built for paradise. And anything short of that, we will be in agony. We will be in shame. We will be, be uncomfortable. And we will always be searching and longing for it. Why do you want to find happiness in your life? Because that is what Eden is like. Why do you want to find friendship? Because God created you for it. Why do you look forward to your next vacation? Because you were created for festive joy and peace and quiet and comfort. You were created to experience those things. And we're not home. What do we do about that? What do we do about the fact that we are not home? And Jesus tells us, through this parable, he tells us. And so let's look at this. The son, remember our story, the son has wasted his inheritance. He has wasted what God has given to him as a blessing. The son goes off and he rebels against God. He has shamed the father. He's accumulated a great debt. When he returns, the father does not demand payment from him. But he puts a ring on his finger and a robe on his shoulders and sandals on his feet. And he kills the fattened calf and he invites the entire village to do what? To party. To have a celebration. To have a feast. But this homecoming, this bringing this exile home, was not cheap. It was actually very expensive. It came at an enormous expense to the elder brother. And last week we saw that Jesus is our elder brother, that Jesus is our true elder brother, that bringing us home has, has accumulated great expense, and Christ has bore that expense in his own life. Think about this. Jesus was stripped on the cross of his clothes so that we could be robed in royalty. Jesus had a crown of thorns put on his head so that we could wear that ring that the Father gives his Son when he returns. Jesus drank the cup of eternal justice so that we can drink the cup of eternal joy. Jesus abandoned his heavenly home so that we could find ours. And Jesus sacrificed everything so that we could gain everything. The Bible talks about what this is. The Bible calls this the atonement. And I don't want that to be a scary word. The Bible uses it, and this is what it means. It's talking about that expense. It means that our homecoming, what does atonement mean? It means that our homecoming, our restored, restored relationship with God is not free. It comes at an enormous expense, and Christ bore that expense entirely in his own life. It means that we had an enormous debt before God and we couldn't pay it. And Christ paid it for us. And after that debt had been paid, the lost son is brought home and there's a feast. And Jesus is telling a story about a feast. And look at the context. Remember the story. What is Jesus doing as he's talking about this feast? He's eating with sinners. He's eating with those younger brothers. He's eating with those exiles that he desires to bring home. And this is important because like today, fellowship around eating is so important. 
You can have a really close friend, but if they invite you over for, at 6 o'clock and they don't have anything, any food prepared for you, not even a drink, you're like, you're great friends, but this is a rotten, this is a rotten fellowship. So I come over Tuesday night, you guys have just little finger foods, it'll be fine. Everything, it's the food and festive and, 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 a, and a feast, it's drawn out. It's carried on. You sit there and you eat and you talk and it's, and it's, just, it's so drawn out. There's so many courses. We don't eat just to, just to survive. We don't eat just so that we will keep on living after today. We eat of the, the intimacy of it, the fellowship of it. And it's no different today than it was then. If anything, then it was so much more important and critical uh, at, to their society. It was a way for culture and family to connect and to grow as friends and to experience and enjoy life together. It was a place of emotional and spiritual and physical flourishing. And someday Christ will return. And when he returns, he will swallow up death completely and he'll swallow up shame and guilt for those exiles. And he will bring them home and he'll prepare a feast of great food and great joy and great dancing. Jesus will make the world a perfect home again. If that's true, if it's true that we have been exiles before God, that we've rebelled in Him in so many ways, and that Jesus is coming back to restore us, then that means that our lives today have to change. The way we live our lives and think about our lives and act in our lives has to be different. This has to, we can't just believe this and say, this is what's true, and then just go on with our our life as if it's not. Janae and I have been taking this spin class lately. It's a lot of fun, a lot of sweat. But I, I gain weight, I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with all the food I eat. And I have this problem with spin, spin class, and it's the same problem I have on a treadmill. It's, you're, you're running on a treadmill, or you're riding the bike in spin class, a stationary bike, and you're not going anywhere. And you're moving, but you're not going anywhere. And it is so easy to feel in this life that we are wandering, continually wandering, going from one place to another, but never arriving. We just keep taking the next day at a time, but we never get to where we want to be. Emotionally, spiritually, we just keep going. We feel like exiles. And I want you to know that it shouldn't be like that. And it doesn't have to be like that. In the Christian life, if it is like that, then we are missing something huge. What kind of people would we be if we could taste this true homecoming, knowing that Christ has given all for us, that he has atoned for our sins, and he welcomes us into this intimate, personal, meaningful relationship with him? What would it look like? What would be present in our life to, to have our life focused and fixed on what Christ has done and the grace that he's given us. So let me just give us a few things that we could be reflecting on. The first one is that we would not lose joy. If we claim that we have salvation but are lacking in joy, then you and I are lacking in a great thing. If we say, God has died for my sins, he's, he's, he's risked everything and sacrificed everything, but I don't have any joy in my life, then we're missing a huge thing. Jesus came to bring festive joy. And if we're not experiencing it, then we need to really look at what's going on. Salvation is experiential. 
It is thoroughly interactive. It's not just intellectual, it's experiential. Salvation in the Bible calls us to taste and see that the Lord is good. To taste and see that the Lord is good. Jonathan Edwards is an 18th century preacher and theologian, and he's preached much and written much, and he says the difference in believing in God and God's grace and tasting God's grace is the difference in believing that honey is sweet and having an actual sense of its sweetness. Do you see the difference? It's like Cohen spending, my son Cohen spending several months with nothing with nothing but breast milk and then we take a little spoon and we dip it in some of our chocolate ice cream and we put it on his tongue and the look on his face it was a look that didn't seem like well it's just all food no everything stopped his face just went completely flat it's almost as if he was saying what just happened <laughs> it's this experience That it's something different, that God's died for me, He has good things for me, He wants to bless me, and He calls me to live an obedient life. That's a good thing, I want to live like that. It's entirely different to taste and to see, to experience it. So that when someone comes to you and says, how do you know that God is gracious? How do you know that God is good and that He's kind and that He loves you? And then you don't say, well, the Bible says it. The Bible says that he's good, that he's gracious, that he's true, and I've chosen to believe that. Now that is not a bad answer. But do you see the difference between this answer? Because I've tasted his grace, I've seen his kindness, I've experienced his joy. That's how I know. It's a little different, isn't it? That's what Christ has come to bring us, that experience. I'm reminded of the man that's born blind in John chapter 9. Maybe you hear the story. He's blind from birth. And Jesus comes up to him and he heals him and he gives him sight for the first time. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the scribes, the, the people who thought they were the, they were the good elder brothers, they were doing everything right. They come to this man and say, what happened? Who is this guy that did this? You know he's a sinner, right? They're trying to peg Jesus as this false prophet, as a sinner. And they just, they're just drilling him. What happened? Tell me what happened. Who is this man? Where did he go? Where did he come from? Who is he? Tell me everything you know about him. And the man says what? He says, I don't know him, but this is what I know. I once was blind, but now I see. I don't know what is said, but what I've experienced is that God is good. And my life and my experience of it it screams of that. Does your life, does your joy that you have in your life Is it a witness that God is joyful, that He is good, that He is gracious? When we truly trust in Christ and His work for us, it becomes real in our life. I think this is what it's meant when Christians say to have Jesus in their heart. Have you heard that before? I don't don't know if I particularly enjoy that phrase. There's nothing wrong with it, but I think that's, that's what it means. When someone says, do you have Jesus in your heart, or I have Jesus in my heart, it means that you've experienced this grace in your life firsthand. That you've had this alteration, you've had this radical change in your life because of what Jesus has done. You know what Jesus has done, and the Spirit has worked in your life to cause an effect in your life that is different from the person you previously were. That's what salvation is, is experiential. 
It is a tasting and seeing that God is good. It is not just a, a, an, a knowledge or a mental assent or a belief that I believe what God has done and, and it, it must be true. But it is this experience and this trust and this hope that we have placed in what Christ has done. And that's the second one, that we would not lose hope. If we truly believe that Christ has come and atoned for our sins and preparing a feast for us and He's invited us to participate in this feast, you and I will never lose hope. You may have heard that some, uh, by some that Christianity is this, I quote, the opiate of the masses. Have you heard that? And what that means is that people will say Christianity or, or religion in general is the opiate of the masses. It's the sedative of the masses. It's a sedative that keeps people from, from seeing what's really true, what is reality. And sadly, it's often like this. This is actually often the truth, that Christians do become more blinded to what is true. But when the gospel of grace transforms our heart and our lives, and the atonement of Christ is applied to us by faith in Him. The gospel is not a sedative, but it's like smelling salts. It's something that you, when you put it under the nose, it just wakes, wakes a person up from a coma. So if we truly understand the gospel of grace in Christ and what He's done, and the expense that has been paid for our homecoming, it is going to make us see things as they really are. That we've been far off from God, but He's atoned for our sins. That we can't earn anything of His blessing, but He gives it to us freely. That it calls each and every one of us to repentance. And in repentance, we receive forgiveness and joy everlasting. And one day, Christ is coming back and preparing a feast for us where there will be festive joy. And we start to see things as they really are. We see our sin as ugly as it is, and we see God's grace as beautiful as it really is. The gospel is, is beautiful. The gospel message of our true elder brother seeking us out when we are lost opens our lives up to the reality that is beyond our circumstances. When our plans don't go the way that we've wanted them to go, we don't feel completely undone because we know God is bigger than that. When we experience loss or grief, we're not finished and we don't just pack up and say, I'm done, that's it. When we have setbacks, we're not, we know that we're not forgotten by God. Because we have a hope. Because we know who He is and what He's done. and That hope is unshakable. Here's what happens. When things come into our life that set us back, whether it's just discouragement or it's a loss or it's a grief of some sort, and we become undone, it's because we fail to return time and again back to the gospel, back to what Christ has done back to His life that He has given us, back to the hope and the joy that He has created for us. If you've recognized over the last five weeks that maybe you're more like an elder brother or more, maybe you're more like a, a younger brother, we both, whether you're younger or older type, have a hard time of returning back to the gospel for health, for nourishment, for encouragement. We, we both, in our own ways, kind of go on our own steam. So we go maybe to God's Word and then we kind of eat a lot of food, like a 10,000 calorie diet, and then we say, well, I'll just coast on that for a while. If you're an elder brother, it's hard for you to return back to the gospel because you're too self-righteous. Because you say too often, I got this, I think I got a handle on this. If you're a younger brother, you fail to return back to the gospel because you're too selfish. It's too much about you. 
So whether we're a younger brother type or an older brother type, we need to continually go back to the gospel daily. It needs to be continually in our hearts and in our minds. And lastly, this is what would happen. To truly understand Christ's atonement and his homecoming that he's provided, we would be obedient. We have our Thursday night group, our life group at 6 o'clock, and we're doing it again this week. And last week, we were talking about this, and I think we had a real aha moment. And I think it was Kyle that spurred it on. (laughs) So we had spent five weeks, probably over seven, eight hours, discussing this parable. And we wrapped up the entire parable with one main concept. And you know what it was? We need to be obedient to Jesus. And it was so bizarre when we, we got to that conclusion. We're thinking, so we just spent seven, eight, nine hours in this life group that's supposed to just radically all, you know, change and encourage us, and our conclusion is we need to obey Jesus. You don't need nine hours to do that. It is so easy as a Pharisee, as an older brother type, to just, you can do that in two minutes and decide, I'm going to obey Jesus. But only the gospel can do something different. Only the gospel can get you to a place where you can say, I need to obey Christ. Plus, see it as a feast. See, if you're a Pharisee, or if you're just an intellectual type, or you're just an elder brother type, you say, what do we need to do? We're a Christian, what do we need to do? Well, obey Jesus. You can do that. You can leave here tonight and say, I know what I need to do, I need to obey Jesus. But it's going to be a lot harder for you to obey Jesus and make it feel like it's a feast. And that's what we got to at the end of the time. And that's how fruitful it was. We, we, we didn't take a straight line to what God requires of us, which is obedience. We went like way off the block. We went into another town. We went into a, another county. And then we came back to the same exact place that we needed to be in the first place. But when we got there, we were so excited to be there. We wanted to obey Jesus. Because we had learned about what the gospel really is and does. Religion makes it a duty, but the gospel makes obedience a feast. It makes it a joy where we would want to do nothing but that. That's bizarre, isn't it? Isn't that just, isn't that wild? It's, it's, wow. That's hard to get to that kind of realization, but that's exactly where we need to be. If obedience for you is difficult, you need the gospel. If obedience for you is difficult and it's, and it's difficult to enjoy it, then you need the gospel continually. You need to soak yourself in it. You need to say, God, I need a bigger awareness of my need for you. And I need a bigger awareness of your love for me. We need those so badly. How can we keep it real like this? How can we keep it real? How can we keep going back to the gospel and, and understand this message as clearly as we possibly can. How can we keep the gospel real in our lives? Here's what I'd like to do, and here's what I propose. It's found in the Lord's Supper. The answer to how we keep it real, how we go to the, the gospel regularly and make it true in our life is what the Lord's Supper represents here we are talking about a feast. And here, and here we have a feast prepared for us, who Christ has prepared for us in his own flesh. 
He's given, him, him, given us Himself. And when the night before He was betrayed and killed, He met with His friends and they ate. And He said, do this in remembrance of Me. Remember the Gospel. Remember your need for Me. And come often to this feast. So that every time you come, you realize you need Him desperately. And every time you come, you realize He's given everything for you. That's what the Lord's Supper means. We do this as a way of reuniting and reconnecting and reestablishing the Father's welcome to us. Every time He prepares this meal for us and we participate in the Lord's Supper, the Father is running towards us and embracing us and falling on our neck like we read last week and giving us everything. So there's two things that it represents for us. The Lord's Supper is a time of intimacy with Christ. This is what the Father says when the question was, why is there dancing, why is there singing, why is there joy? He says, my son who was once dead is now alive. Does this sound like any other son you know? Like God the Father and God the Son? My son who was once dead is now alive. Why do we have room for joy in our life? Because Jesus, who was dead, is now alive. Jesus is alive. And there is, that is reason for joy. If you want to make God real, then we come to him by faith. And we eat his flesh, spiritually by faith. We recognize that Jesus has died for us and he's given us his body. He has atoned for our sin and we feast on that. It's a spiritual feast where we reunite and and enjoy that fellowship with Him. So it is a time for us, every time we take this, to come together and say, this is what I believe, Jesus. I'm a sinner, and I come by Your grace only. And I need You. And I encourage you, if you are in a place where you have placed your trust in Christ, but there is an area of sin in your life, that you would repent of it, that you would confess it unto Christ, that the Bible says that we would bear fruit by keeping with repentance, that continually we would search our heart. And where there is any area of alienation from God, we would confess those sins and ask for His forgiveness. And that we would put our complete trust in Him, and then we would come to the meal and we would celebrate. And we would have a feast. Secondly, it's not only that. It's not only just come and reflect on your own life. It is, the Lord's Supper is a communal feast. This is what every time we come and we take this Lord's Supper and we have this feast, just like the parable, just like the story, the Father invited the entire town to come together. We cannot approach the Lord's Supper unless we do it communally. We cannot take the Lord's Supper unless we realize that we are not autonomous people. That it's not just me, my Bible, and Jesus. That we need one another. That if you have trusted in Christ, there is this relationship with you and God and you with other other believers. And so Jesus has provided this meal so that we would recognize that in Christ, He's calling us to a communal life, a together life. You You and I can't be changed without sharing life. And every time there's shame in our life, you know what it does? It it desires to kind of pull us out of that, 
Pull us out of that communal living. Pull us out of the community. Pull us out of sharing our life with others. But God has created that community so that we would come together and be changed by it. If you come to the church because you want to be a better person or you want to get fixed, but you're not connected to people, then when you participate in the Lord's Supper, your beliefs don't match up with your life. Because when you take the Lord's Supper, what it screams is, we are a body. We are together. But what you're living is, I'm in isolation. I could do this on my own. So how do we start to believe or continue to believe tonight? This is where the meaning of the subtitle for our parable, if you look in the front of the bulletin, what does it say? It says, find your place at the table. This is what this all means. If you've been wondering, what does it mean to find your place at the table for five weeks and now we're getting to the end of it, this is what that means. How do we start to believe or how do we continue to live out this gospel-centered life where Christ is everything that we need and all that, we, all that our soul desires? Then the deepest part of who we are, we confess to the Father and say, Father, accept me because of what Jesus has done for me, the expense that has been paid on his behalf so that I might come home, so that I might be restored, so that I might have joy with you, so that I might be loved by you and enjoy the community that you've set up. Accept me not because I've been a great person. Accept me not because I've been a bad person and I've changed, but accept me because of what Jesus has done. When we do that, we have this foretaste of what this community can be. We have a foretaste of the great festival feast. Let's pray. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.